Welcome to Engaging History. My name is Christopher Kinsella, author of Chain of Deception. I'm a professor of history at Cuyahoga Community College in Northeast Ohio. My podcasts are not endorsed by any individual or organization. This podcast is my opinion and interpretation of the historical events that I will discuss. The purpose of the podcasts are in general to discuss American and world history in a way that engages you and explains so much of the country and the world around you. But I also discuss it in a way that is understandable and interesting. Hello and welcome back to World Podcast number 22, or 22nd podcast in world history. In the 21st podcast, we discussed the rise of two prominent Germanic families on the western half of the European continent called the Merovingians and then the Carolingians. We looked at and found out the way and the reasons why the eastern half of the Roman Catholic Church that eventually was on its own, under its own orthodoxy, or again, translated right way, that it believed it was truer to Christ's teaching. And we saw in that 21st podcast the reasons for the East's accusations that the West was getting, Western half of the Roman Catholic Church, the popes were getting too political. They were cozying up too much with local political leaders. Well, the rise of the Merovingians and Carolingians literally is exhibits A through Z as to the reasons why the Eastern half of the former Roman Catholic Church was so disgusted by the politics that the popes played. We saw the way Clovis I getting baptized and winning the affection of the Roman Catholic Church because he become, became baptized and converted to Christianity. And then they started donating money and then tracts of land. And then by the time we get to Charlemagne, we're seeing the fact that the Roman Catholic Church land-wise is so large that they physically need military protection. So Charles gives them that while Charles becomes the spiritual leader, again, with the reign of Charlemagne, when he was crowned by Pope Leo III of all days on Christmas Day in autumn of 800 AD. So they, he becomes, again, our first, what will become known as Holy Roman Emperor. This will be the first Reich that will it be in existence until the end of the Thirty Years' War with the Treaty of Westphalia in 1648. Many podcasts down the road, but we will discuss that, of course, when we get there. So what do we know then about Charlemagne? Translated, Charlemagne means Charles the Great. As I foreshadowed in that last podcast, that when somebody receives, much less posthumously, receives the title the Great, it's a title we don't exactly hand around uh, too readily. It's not like candy on Halloween, where either we throw the, the historians throw the term the Great, basically we throw those terms around like sewer covers. You really have to earn them. So what does Charlemagne then do to earn this? Is it his affiliation with the Roman Catholic Church? Yeah, not even close, because in some cases that's considered a mark against him on his track record. Rather, it is the intellectual revival that we begin to see rising up in Charlemagne's time. You say, wait a minute, hold on, Chris, go back to several podcasts. You said the reason for the Middle Ages, the reason that's called the Dark Ages, is because the mind was shut off. And I get you. Bear with me to the end of this podcast. Hold your fire. 
to the end of this podcast and you'll see that while Charlemagne is known for his intellectual revival, and we credit him significantly for what he achieved, there's going to be a massive absence of something that he didn't do that the educators and the scholars before him in the ancient world, that's all they did. So let's take a look. His drive, Charlemagne's drive for learning was perhaps his greatest legacy. And ironically enough, we don't have any actual proof that Charlemagne was literate. We know that he had an insatiable curiosity. He asked questions about everything. He, you picture the five, six, seven-year-old little boy that won't stop asking mom and dad questions about how and why. And the moment mom and dad look over the back seat and say, well, this is why, Junior. Okay, well, that'll shut him up for a while. <laughs> Not him. Boom. Now that answer only uh, knocks dominoes down for further questions, right? That was Charlemagne. However, a little bit ahead of his time, too, his son, as we'll talk about Louis, Louis the Pious, he really didn't care whether Lewis was educated or not. But his daughters, oh yeah, daughters had no choice, had no say in whether they were going to get schooled or not. Charlemagne wanted educated daughters. We don't have an exact number of how many daughters he had, but we do know he has a history of many people attesting to the way that he instilled the drive for education in his daughters. So where Charlemagne comes in is when we give him credit for this intellectual revival is because he recognized through his own scholars in his principalities, in his kingdom, that they recognized that the texts and documents of the ancient world were getting to the point of no longer being legible. The documents of the great Greek scholars and philosophers and thinkers and the Roman scholars like Cicero and others, those documents, while being preserved and usually under the auspices of the Roman Catholic Church, were disintegrating. The documents needed in other words, almost like a 2.0. They needed to be copied down so that we didn't lose the legacy of what those prior educators and those prior scholars left for humanity. Without Charlemagne, ladies and gentlemen, so much of what we know about the likes of Cicero and Pythagoras and Herodotus and Cleisthenes, we wouldn't know today without Charlemagne's intent to copy down all of those ancient manuscripts and texts. So we more than thank him for his strive for recording and preserving these documents. However, please note and remember the kind of time period here we're talking about. Uh, Nobody is actually taking pictures of these documents with their smartphones and uploading them. Now that, that technology is just a bit off. Uh, so that's out. In fact, what we might take for granted and maybe use less of than almost any generation of people in the, in the Western modern world was paper. Paper or papyrus in these days or parchment was extremely hard to come by. It was expensive. It was time consuming to produce. And no, there was no 500 sheets of uh, paper for 88 cent sale at the local Walmart. So the reason for copying these down, again, self-explanatory, Charlemagne doesn't want to lose 
what was learned as they translated into the modern language, into Latin and, and uh, the precursors to modern day Germany, uh, German and French languages. No, he knows he had to copy these down, but he had limited resources. So Charlemagne got together with the scholars and looked at these ancient manuscripts, which they had the knowledge to be able to translate. Some were copied word for word in the original language, whether it be ancient Greek or Latin, others were translated. But regardless of how it was done, they had that limited supply of paper available. So what they did is came up with an idea that some of you might actually be doing right now. Some of you have might already done it, listening to my prior podcasts. Okay, before you fell asleep. But I mean, you get the idea. So, and, and that is the way you take the notes. How many people here, if you've taken any notes on this podcast or on any notes today or even yesterday, how many of you, when you copy something down, do you print? You actually print your letters. How many? Raise your hands. Oh, none of you raise your hands. I can never see anyhow. Okay, so the number of people that print is actually going back up to the point that the last time that I taught this physically face-to-face before the pandemic hit was the very first time in my 20 years of teaching at the college level, not including high school before that, where the entire class who was taking notes on paper admitted that they were printing. When I first started teaching, I might have seen one or two students raise their hand. Everybody else was taking notes another way, and it was through handwriting. Cursive. Think about cursive for a moment. What does cursive allow you to do that printing delays or doesn't do? Think about that a moment. If you copy down this phrase, his drive for learning was perhaps his greatest legacy. What's the difference between printing that phrase and handwriting? Think about it. First off, as we know with the handwriting, we're linking our letters together. There's no space between the letters the way that it is when it's printed. That does something to, that gives the scholars of Charlemagne, two very much needed things. Number one, it conserves space. Secondly, it increases their speed. Charlemagne felt as though that they were operating under a time clock that he was afraid would tick too far too long and these documents would disintegrate and become unintelligible or unreadable going forward. He felt as though he was in a race to get these documents translated. So handwriting not only decreases the amount of space you need, but it also allows you to write faster. There's also something else that we do that isn't necessarily tied with handwriting, but those that handwrite, use handwriting, generally tend to do this more than those that print. And that is the use of contractions. Cannot becomes can't do not becomes don't. You get the idea that don't versus do not, once again, less letters, less space, faster to put one word 
to convey the, convey the idea of two words. So this whole idea of taking notes and translating using the modern day, using modern day handwriting, that's how many of Charlemagne's scholars who were hired to translate and copy those texts on the subject, such as grammar, rhetoric, astronomy, medicine, and history. To reduce the time spent on copying and reduce the need for limited pieces of parchment, the scholars then adopted a standard way of connecting those letters and forming those contractions that would become the model and still be the model for the future printing press some 600 years later. It was a fantastic accomplishment, clearly something that will most likely allow Charles of the Carolingian family to retain the title Charlemagne going forward. And you're not going to hear me make any objections to that. When I said, though, just a caveat to this, to back up a moment, when I said for the, la the, the last time that I was physically in the classroom, that it was the first time I had a group of students that not one person raised their hand to the point, ladies and gentlemen, I didn't believe them. I literally went around and looked at everybody's notebook to see that literally they were printing. And then I came home and talked with my wife about it. And she said, why would you be surprised? By and large, most school districts throughout the United States and in many cases around the world are no longer teaching cursive. Why? Because of the keyboard. Because of talk to text. It's getting to the point that handwriting, the ability to connect those letters, is becoming a lost art. Now, I'm not here to say because something is going to the wayside that I'm going to negate that or talk down on it simply because of either my age or the fact that I'm a historian and we should preserve these things and keep them going. Hey, if modern day generation doesn't want to get engaged and learn handwriting, that's one thing. But the question is, will they be able to read something from somebody that does write in cursive? So if you don't want to teach the students how to write it, that's one thing but they clearly should be taught how to read it because that older generation supervisor, that that's all they do is jot down notes and handwriting to their, to their staff and passes those out. Can you imagine having a recent college graduate that literally can't understand a communication that from their boss or supervisor because it was communicated in cursive? Just something to think about. So let's go though, unpack where I said, hold your fire when I said, no, no, this Charlemagne is still somewhat a product of his times living in the dark ages. If his legacy was his drive for this intellectual revival, then doesn't he negate what I said when I introduced the Middle Ages, that the reason it's called the Dark Ages is the human mind of curiosity was turned off. And the fact of the matter is, Charlemagne is not the exception to that rule. He's awfully close. I'll give you that. But notice what Charlemagne wanted his intelligent scholars to do. The need for inventing, truly inventing, a brand new way of writing was to record old information. It was not for the advancement of education. Please note, folks, that is a huge distinction. We have no written record. We have no evidence that any of Charlemagne's scholars ever dared to ask how or why. 
the whole reason for that massive amount of ancient manuscripts is because the thinkers of the ancient world dared to ask how and why, amongst other questions, in order to advance their knowledge, advance the idea of education. We have no knowledge that any of Charlemagne's scholars did that. I'm not trying to knock them off their perch of notoriety. Again, we would not know so much about the ancient world without them. But please know that in this case, Charlemagne and his scholars were true products of their time, people of their generation. They were not so interested in asking how and why, but rather simply to record. So something else, too, to, um, it may seem like I'm trying to undo Charlemagne's legacy, and I'm not. But it is something to, to note there about the fact that, again, he wasn't looking to, uh, to, to advance. It was simply to record. So that's the reason why Charlemagne doesn't break this model of the Dark Ages. But there's second something, something else when I said that Charlemagne becomes known as the first Holy Roman Emperor. Again, nothing holy about it. It was completely clerical. Nothing uh, Roman about it. And the fact, why not really does Emperor deserve the title? Because Charlemagne can't keep the legacy going. Empire, by definition, in the political sense, means the continuation, the continuation of what he and his ancestors have pulled together. And that wasn't to be. Charlemagne was very savvy and aware of the Salic law. He knew. That if he has more than one son, all of his land upon his death is going to be divided amongst all living male heirs. That's what the Salic law demands. That said, again, we know Charlemagne had multiple girls, but he only had one son. Did Charlemagne only have one son, or is that the only one he revealed to the world? We don't know. But he did leave it to his son, Lewis. And if Charlemagne by chance did have many boys, so let's say three, four, five, maybe even half a dozen, for the purposes of the continuity of empire, Charlemagne could not have chosen the worst one, a one worse than Lewis. Lewis was a wonderful person. His title, Lewis the Pious. Now, when you think Louis the Pious, and you, turn, you hear that term, the pious, yeah, it's not exactly an image that you imagine Louis is on the back of his horse, wielding his sword and shield, trying to advance the land holdings of his ancestors. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's not Louis. Charlemagne tried to ad nauseum to get his son interested in the military, in fighting, in politics. Louis wanted none of that. And you might say, well, Chris, you know, as long as we're focused on his title, Louis the Pious, my guess is he wanted to go in the priesthood. <laughs> now, you're wrong there, too. Louis the Pious, that title fits in this military political sense. In the religious sense, it doesn't. By pious, all they meant is that he was nothing like Charlemagne, his father, or his grandfathers and great-grandfathers, Pippins and Clovis, and all the way down the line. That's what they meant by pious. He just wasn't into fighting. He wasn't into warfare. Religious? Eh, no. Lewis definitely had a hell of a fast zipper. 
had many daughters, and by the time he died in 840 AD, he left his father's estate to his three sons, Lothair, Louis, and Charles. And with each one of them getting a roughly equal, in the sense of square mileage, tract of land, with each one of them getting that, Charlemagne's empire by 840 AD was no longer in existence. Yes, it was still under the family name, but then Lothair, Louis, and Charles also had boys, also who would be left to, to their left to them upon the deaths of their father. And before you know it, the European continent fragmented down once again to individual feudal estates. That's why it's not just a personal opinion when I say there really was nothing empire-esque about Charlemagne in his day. In his day, yes, you can give it to him, but not for his legacy. Bitter warfare would take place among the three sons, so it was bad enough that the three sons had the empire split up three ways, but each son felt as though that he was given the worst shaft of land, the worst tract of land. So there was constant infighting for about three years before the politicians that be came together and forced the three men to sign what became known as the Treaty of Verdun, signed in 843 AD, that settled the landholding issue. So from 732 AD, with the rise of the first ancestor and eventually would become known as the Merovingian family that would marry in and become the Carolingian family to its greatest height in the sense of political and religious influence and physical land under one family's name, by Christmas Day 800, 43 years later, left almost no trace of that legacy. Again, that's the reason why in, the modern, in, in, in a modern definition of empire, Charlemagne didn't have what we normally would call the empire as we know it. So that ends this podcast, which again is on the shorter side. I, I'm aware of that, but I want to make this as a clean break before we start up podcast number 23, as we are now going to be looking at different aspects of life as we move into the high middle ages. So thank you for listening. Please go to my website, ceconsella.com. Email me with any questions or comments that you might have, as well as book recommendations. If you like what we discuss, please leave me a review as well on whatever platform you're listening. Unless you admit that you haven't slept better in years since you've been listening to my podcast, uh, just shoot me a private email on that one. We don't necessarily want to go public with that. Other than that, thanks for listening and have a great day. 